Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Psalm 5, verses 1 through 12. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, uh, you will find Psalm 5 on page 449. Now, I know some of you are a bit surprised uh, that we're not in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We have spent the better part of the last four years working our way through Luke's Gospel, uh, and we still have a ways to go in that study. Uh, But it is my habit to set aside our regular uh, sermon series during the summer months. You know, as Jim prayed, we have disordered schedules, things change up a little bit, and so we we change things up a little bit as well. And so two years ago, I preached a a series of sermons from the Psalms, and I took up 12 of the first uh, 24 Psalms. And that uh, never sat right with me. I don't like skipping over uh, text. And so what I decided to do this year was simply to go back and pick up the other 12 uh, that I did not preach on two years ago. And so from now until the end of August, we will be in the Psalms and we'll be simply going from one Psalm to the next, depending on the ones that we uh, didn't cover uh, last time. So this morning we begin with Psalm 5. Let us read it together. Psalm 5, beginning at verse 1. Listen to this. This is the very word of God, to the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching here this morning. Father God, Your Word is living and active. By it we have been born again, and by it we now grow up in our salvation. And so, Father, we ask that as Your Word is preached here, that it would not be the mere words of man, but by the power of Your Holy Spirit, it may be the powerful Word of God to renew and transform us, to equip us for every good work which You have prepared in advance for us to do. Father God, do this here this morning according to Your great mercy we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. The psalmist says, O Lord, 
Consider my groaning. And I know what it is to groan. Despite the comparative ease of my life up to this point, I know what it is to be in distress. I know the the wounds that I experience from uh, my daily battle with the passions of my flesh, which Peter warns us will continue to wage war against our souls until the day that Christ returns. I know the the struggle that I have to, to love and to lead Sarah well. I know the the struggle to to raise my children and the instruction and discipline of the Lord and what it is to to feel utterly insufficient for such a task. I know the struggle of of pastoring the sheep that have been entrusted to my care. The the struggle of being a good neighbor. the, The struggle of doing justice and loving mercy in my community. All while dealing with the ever increasing frailty of my own body, which I feel particularly after shoveling mulch. Yesterday, I know what it is to groan, and I know I'm not alone. I know that you all suffer in many of the same ways, and and you suffer in many more ways besides. I know because I hear your stories. I hear the stories of, of broken bodies, of broken marriages, broken families, broken friendships, broken Careers, broken communities, broken souls. We may not have flesh and blood enemies seeking our demise through physical force the same way that that David did or the same way that many believers do today in other parts of the world. But we know what it is to feel under siege. We know what it is to, to be under attack. We know what it is to be beaten and bruised by the contingencies of life. We know what it is to groan. Because such struggles are simply the reality of life in this present evil age. In this life, we groan. And so it's no wonder that nearly half the Psalms contain some sort of lament. Think about what a lament is. A a lament is an anguished cry to God, a a cry for relief and for deliverance from some situation that is not the way that it is supposed to be. Some situation that has been ravaged and, and twisted by sin. Situations like we all experience regularly in the course of our daily lives. So we know what it is to groan. And so God, knowing our groaning, hearing our groaning, He gives us psalms of lament that we might learn to lament as Christians. You see, you don't need to be a Christian to lament. You don't need to be a Christian to to groan. You don't need to to be a Christian to recognize that this world is broken and not the way that it is supposed to be. You can cry out for relief even in unbelief. But as Christians, we ought to lament differently than the world. As Christians, we ought to lament as those who know the assurance of God's steadfast love. As those who who know the hope of His immeasurable power. We ought to lament differently because we have faith in the one true God. And this is exactly what Psalms like Psalm 5 teach us to do. Here, David leads us in lament. He leads us in crying out to God from the midst of our groaning that we might learn to lament as Christians. 
And if you look at the psalm as a whole, you'll see that it can be divided into three parts. And I want to consider each part this morning. In, in verses 1 through 3, we have David's cry. And I want to, to look at that more closely. Then in verses 4 through 9, we have David's hope as he, as he gives us the reasons why he is confident in God. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, we have David's petition. Now, I'll tell you now, we're only going to have time to look at the first two of those this morning. We're going to leave his his petition for next Sunday. But this morning, I want to look at David's cry, and then I want to consider David's hopes. Let's begin with David's cry in verses 1 through 3. Look again at what David writes. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Now there are at least two things that I think we need to see here in David's cry. And the first thing we need to see is David's honesty. David is in distress. He, he doesn't give us the details as he does in Psalm 3. Remember in Psalm 3, David tells us that, that he is crying out to God because he is under siege by his own son Absalom. Here, he, he doesn't give us the historical situation. We don't know the, the details. That's true of many of the Psalms. And it's because these Psalms are not meant to be used in, in only one situation, but they are Psalms for God's people as they experience the general brokenness of this world. And so while he doesn't give us the historical details, It is clear that he is in trouble. And what I want you to notice is that he doesn't hide it. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't seek to to sugarcoat it. He he cries out to God and, and he tells God that he is groaning and that he is in need of deliverance. In fact, we hear something of his desperation. Notice David is speaking to God in imperatives. He he's giving God commands. That's not because he thinks that God is at his beck and call, but rather it is a sign of his desperation. It is a, it is a, a child crying out to his father, help, help. It's, it's more than a kind request. It is an imperative. I need your help and I need it now. This is what David is doing. He is, he is crying out to God in utter desperation. But even as he cries out to God, and even as he is honest about the situation that he finds himself in, the second thing I want you to see is David's hope. Even as David cries out to God, he cries out in hope. We see this in any number of ways. First, notice, he addresses God as Yahweh. When you see Lord in all capitals, that's what it is. It is the name Yahweh. It is, it is God's covenant name. It is, the God, it is the name that reminds God's people that here is a God who makes and keeps promises. Yahweh is the name that, that God demonstrated when he brought his people out of Egypt according to the promise that he had made hundreds of years before to Abraham. And so when David refers to God as Yahweh, he is remembering that the God he is praying to is the covenant-keeping God. The God who always makes good on his promises. But he also makes it even more personal. Notice verse 2. Notice the pronouns that he uses. He, He refers to Yahweh as my King and my God. God isn't just Yahweh. He isn't just the covenant-keeping God. He is David's covenant-keeping God. He is David's king. David claims Yahweh as his own. David says, you are for me. You are my God. And don't miss the importance of the titles that he uses. First, Yahweh is king. 
We don't have kings today. We don't, we don't think about what a king means, but a king is one who leads and protects his people. One who stands in the gap for their protection. And so when David refers to, to Yahweh as his king, he is, he is saying, you are my shield and my protector. If he had lived in a different age, he, he might have said, you are my bulwark never failing. You are my mighty fortress. This is what it means to call God king. But not only is he king, he is also God. And think about what that means. The one who stands to protect you, the one who who stands in the gap for for David, is the almighty God, is the one who who works all things according to the counsel of his will, is the one who, who does whatever he pleases. If such a one is for you, David says, then I can have hope. For there is no one and there is no power in all creation that can thwart his purposes. And so therefore David has hope. We see this in verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, in the morning I will prepare a sacrifice and watch. That last word, it, it, it oozes with hope. David isn't saying simply that he's going to watch and see what is going to happen as if he doesn't know. But when he, he watches, he is watching to see what God is going to do. It is, it is like a child sitting at the window waiting for their parents to come home. Waiting for their grandparents to visit. They are, they are not watching, wondering what is going to happen. They are watching because they know what is going to happen. They know the one they love. They know the one that is for them. The one that will bring them blessing is coming. And they are watching. They are waiting. This is David's posture. He is in distress and he's crying out to God, but he is watching as one who has hope. He's honest, but he's hopeful. And I think his example is one that we must emulate in our prayers. We must be honest. We we must be honest about the the experiences of our our daily life. We should not seek to downplay the the trials. We should not seek to to minimize the, the groaning. We live in a broken world with broken people as broken people. There is groaning to be done in this life. Yes, there are good times and yes, there are there are psalms that that express joy and thanksgiving. But in this life, our joy and our thanksgiving will always set set alongside pain. Will always set alongside struggle. Not until He comes again to bring to completion the good work that He has done that will our groaning be finished. And so we must be honest about our situations. We, we, We must come before God admitting where we are and admitting even our desperation. Lord, how long? Act now. I don't know how much longer I can take this. We must be honest in our prayers. We must be honest in our laments. But at the same time, we must be hopeful. Like David, we must be prepared to offer our sacrifice and watch. Waiting to see what God is going to do. But where does this hope come from? What, What is the source of this confidence? On what foundation does it rest? Why does does David know and and how can we know that the Lord will hear our cries and come to our aid? We find our answer in verses 4 through 9. In these verses, David shows us that, that his hope rests upon three pillars. The three pillars of David's hope are first, what he knows about God. Second, what he knows about himself. And third, what he knows about his enemies. Look again at these three 
pillars. First, what David knows about God. We see it in verses 4 through 6. David writes, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, if we're honest, I think we have to admit that's not what we're expecting. When, when we're talking about hope, when we're, we're talking about our, our confidence in God, we're, we're not expecting words like David writes. Rather, we're expecting an appeal to God's loving kindness, or, or we're expecting him to, to refer to his, you know, his faithful endurance or his, his merciful patience. But instead, David appeals to God's wrath. Notice again, he, he says, I know you will hear my prayer because you do not delight in wickedness. I know you will hear my prayer because you will not abide the wicked. I know you will hear my prayer because you do not let the arrogant stand. But you destroy those who speak lies and you abhor the bloodthirsty. It's almost shocking. And it forces us to ask, how does God's wrath ground and support David's hope? How does knowing that, that, that God does not delight in wickedness and that he abhors the bloodthirsty, how does this give David hope? Well, to answer that question, we must see that God's wrath is good. You see, God's wrath is, is not capricious or, or petty. On the contrary, God's wrath is perfectly holy. His wrath is Pure. Again, notice what it is that draws out God's wrath. It is, it is wickedness. It is evil. It is evildoers. It is liars and, and deceitful. It is those who are boastful and, and bloodthirsty. These are the ones against whom God's wrath burns. And when you take the time to, to consider the things that, that stir up God's wrath, I think you begin to realize that it is good to hate these things. In fact, it would be wrong not to hate these things. If God did not abhor these things, if He simply overlooked them or if He simply ignored them, then He Himself would not be good. And so if it is good to hate these things, then then take the next logical step. If it is good to to hate these things, then it is also good to oppose them. It is is good to to destroy them. It is good to wipe them out. We we recognize this at some level, but it's still jarring. It's, It's jarring because we're not used to thinking this way. The spirit of our age says that it is good to be tolerant. The spirit of our age says that accepting is always best. Tolerance is love. Acceptance is kindness. This is the zeitgeist. This is the the spirit of our age. And it shapes our thinking more than we know. And it explains why we are so shocked when we hear David speak this way. But stop and think for a moment. Is this really true? Is it really true that tolerance and acceptance are always good? Is it true that these things are always virtuous? I don't think you have to think long before you realize that of course not. Of course not. Of course these things are not always good. And we know it. 
In recent years, there have been a number of stories in the news about the wicked and evil things that have been going on in and around some major college sports programs. Pick your favorite school and you can probably think of a story, some worse than others. But ask yourself a question. Did anyone think that the college presidents who who tolerated such things, did anybody think that the college administrators who, who accepted such things for the sake of a winning season, did anybody think that they were virtuous? Did anybody think that their tolerance was good? Of course not. Why? Because the things they were tolerating were evil. Because the things they were accepting were, were wicked, and everyone knew it. And therefore, everyone recognized, whether they, they thought it through or not, everyone recognized that their tolerance, their acceptance was not virtue, but vice. It was not good, but evil. Because what they were tolerating was evil. It is the same with God. If God is good, He cannot tolerate evil. If, if God is good, He must hate and destroy it. And therefore, it is good that God hates evil. But more than this, more than just good that God hates evil, it is also good news that God hates evil. Think about it. Your only hope for a new heavens and a new earth, your only hope for an inheritance undefiled by the ravages of sin, your only hope for this world to be put right is God's wrath, God's hatred of evil. If God didn't hate it, if God simply tolerated it, if He simply overlooked it, then this world would be as good as it gets. It would never be put right. But because God hates evil, we have hope. And this is where David begins his lament. He knows that evil will not have the last word in this world. He knows that eventually God will act to put things right. But not only does God know something, or does David know something about God, he also knows something about himself. This is the second pillar of David's hope. Again, notice what he says there in verses 7 and 8. He says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So what is it that David knows? Well, what David knows is that he may enter the house of the Lord. In verse 4, he had told us that the evil may not dwell with God. They may not dwell in his presence. They, they They may not abide there for even a short time. For as Psalm 24 says, Only those with clean hands and a pure heart may ascend the hill of the Lord. And yet David knows that he may enter the house of the Lord. To many, this sounds unbelievably arrogant. Who does David think he is? Why does David think he can abide in the presence of God when when others may not? But when we look at what David actually says, we, we realize that he is not arrogant, but he is unbelievably humble. Notice, his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is, is not in his own goodness. His confidence is not in his own merit. Rather, his confidence is in the Lord's steadfast love. It is God's grace. It is God's mercy. It is God's love that opens the door for David to enter. 
And notice the progression of the verse. Because God has set His love upon David, He is now able to enter the temple in the fear of the Lord and able to ask for righteousness. Do you see it? God's initiating love leads to fear in our hearts which leads us then to ask for righteousness. So David isn't coming because he is righteous. He is coming to be made righteous. He is coming in humble reliance upon God's grace alone. And we struggle with that word fear sometimes, but but fear is simply an Old Testament way of speaking about faith. To fear the Lord is to regard Him as God, to acknowledge Him for who He is, to to recognize that He is the one who has life in Himself, that, that He is the one who commands your eternal destiny. Jesus Himself said, Do not fear the one who can merely kill your body, but fear Him who has authority over your soul. To fear God is to recognize that He is God, to have faith is to recognize that that God is is God. Faith is expressed in proper fear, not a a servile fear, not a fear of, of capricious meanness, but rather a proper respect for who God is. And it is because God has loved us that we now have had our eyes open, that we now see Him, that we now fear Him properly. And fearing the Lord, we are now able to come into His house and ask to be made righteous. Lord, lead me in righteousness state. Make your ways straight before me. Because David knows himself to be one who has been loved by God and has been called to this true repentance, this, this turning from sin to God with a, with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because David knows himself to be a Christian. He is able to, to confidently pray to God and say, God, I know that you will work for the good of those who love you. So what David knows about himself, his his assurance of his right standing before God, this is the second pillar of his hope. But there's also a third pillar here, and we see it in verse 9. Notice what David writes. Of his enemies, he says, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Look at that middle pair first. Their their inmost self is destruction and their throat is an open grave. What is David saying? He's saying that these people who oppose him, these people who are seeking to, to bring about his harm, that they have hearts set on destruction. The, the phrase, open grave, was sometimes used for an insatiable appetite for death. These are people who are full of malice. This is not the rebuke of kindness. This is is not the discipline of of love. But this is the malice of an enemy. These people come. They come to tear David down rather than build him up. And they use their words to do it. Even in David's day, when when physical warfare was, was well known, words were still regarded as powerful, even as they are today. And David knew... That the words of these enemies, this was not the rebuke of a friend. But rather, these were the words of one who was seeking his destruction. These are the words who were one who was seeking to bring death and not life. And therefore, he knows 
Because his enemies are full of mouth, because there is no truth in their accusations, he knows that God will oppose their purposes. God will not allow them to succeed in their evil devices. Yes, they may cause him to suffer for a time, but in the end, they cannot harm him. So this is David's confidence. This is the the foundation of, of David's hope. He knows that God is a God who hates evil. He knows that he, through God's steadfast love, is righteous. And he knows that his enemies are wicked and full of malice. And therefore, he knows with full assurance that God will hear his prayer and work for his good. And I am convinced that as we bring our laments before God, our hope must rest upon these same three pillars. We must know the truth about God. We must know the truth about ourselves. And we must know the truth about our enemies. First, we we must know the truth about God. We, We must know that He is holy and will not abide the wicked forever. And we must delight in this. We must train ourselves to to hear and to see God's wrath as good and as good for His people. We live in a community that recoils at God's wrath. We, We live surrounded by people who want to impugn God for His wrath. But we must train ourselves through through the reading of God's Word and through through prayer to to recognize that God's wrath is good and it is our only hope. We have a hope for the future because God is a God who will one day destroy the works of the devil, who will one day put all things right, who will one day turn this world right side up. And so as we come before God, we must come before Him as people who are saturated with the truths about who God is. Truths that we see clearly displayed in the cross. Do you want to know whether God hates evil? Do you want to know whether God will will one day seek to destroy it? Look to the cross. Look to His Son, sacrificed for our sins. God could not simply overlook it. He had to deal with it. And He was willing to put forth His Son as the sacrifice for our sins. That evil might be destroyed. That this body of death might be brought to nothing. And so that we might know blessing instead of curse. We must begin with the truth about who God is, but we must also know the truth about who we are. If we would pray with hope, we must know ourselves to be righteous. Not confident in our own works, but confident in His steadfast love. Now there are at least two reasons why someone might not know themselves to be righteous. One reason might be because they are not righteous. There are many in the church today who who have not truly believed the gospel, have not truly received and rested upon Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to examine yourself, to ask yourself, do I know the gospel? Have I believed the gospel? Am I resting in the gospel? Do I know Jesus Christ to be the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? Do I know that that He died for my sins and that my only hope of reconciliation with the Father is through His shed blood? Do I know these things to be true? You must ask yourself, but if you examine your heart and you find that this faith is truly your faith, then I exhort you to have assurance. Believe the promises. Take God at His word. He says you are righteous through the blood of His Son. Believe it. And believe that being righteous, He is now 
for you. You must know the truth about who you are in Christ. So you must know the truth about God. You must know the truth about who you are. And you must know the truth about your enemies. When your enemies bring charges against you, it would be the height of foolishness simply to dismiss them. It would be the height of foolishness just to assume that they are wrong. I often tell people when I am counseling that if someone has a charge against you, it's likely true. We are, after all, sinners. And we do offend. And so when someone brings a charge against us, even if they bring the charge with malice, we should listen to it. We should should hear what they have to say. And we should examine ourselves to, to see if it is true. But if, having examined ourselves, we, we find that their charge is not true, or if, or if we find that it is true and we acknowledge it and we repent of it and we seek to make restitution and they still will not live at peace with us, at such times we must know that their charges are false, that they, they bring them with malice, and therefore there is no possibility that they will succeed because the God of all the universe stands against them. God is for us. And if He is for us, there is nothing our enemies can do to harm us. And we must know this if we would lament as Christians. If we would lament as those with hope, we must know God. We must know ourselves and we must know our enemy. Because when we know these things, we will be able to, with David, offer our sacrifice in the morning and watch, eagerly expecting God to come to our rescue, eagerly expecting God to do what is ultimately for our good. And because such hope is ours in Christ, even in the midst of the grievous trials of life, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, We are not worthy of such a gospel. But our hope rests not upon our own merit, but upon your steadfast love. Father God, I pray that you would cause these truths to dwell richly in our heart. I pray that you would cause them to rule in our minds. And I pray that you would cause them to to transform our lives. That we might live as people of hope, even in this present evil age. Father, teach us to lament as Christians, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.